Part five, chapter seven of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Manxman by Sir Hall Kane. Part five, chapter seven. Pete went out to buy a sheet of notepaper and an envelope, a pen and a postage stamp. He had abundance of all these at home, but that did not serve his turn. Going to as many shops as might be, he dropped hints everywhere of the purpose to which his purchases were to be put. Finally he went to the barber's in the marketplace and said, "'Will you write an address for me, John Of "'Course I will,' said the barber, sweeping a hand of velvet over one cheek of the postman, who was in the chair, leaving the other cheek in lather while he took up the pen. "'Mistress Peter Quilliam, care of Master Joseph Quilliam, Esquire, Scotland Road, Liverpool,' dictated Pete." "'What number, Captain?' said Janake. "'Number?' said Pete, perplexed. "'Bless me, what's this the number is now? "'Oh, by sudden inspiration, five hundred and fifteen. Five hundred? do you say five? said the postman, "'from the half of his mouth that was clear. Five said Pete emphatically. "'Oh, they're well up.' "'If you say so, Captain,' said the barber, "'and down went five one five. Pete returned home with a stamped and addressed envelope open in his hands. "'Claim the table quick,' he shouted. "'I must be writing to Kiri. "'Will I give her your love, Nancy?' With much hemming and harring and clearing of his throat, Pete was settling himself before a sheet of notepaper when the door opened and Philip stepped into the house. His face was haggard and emaciated. His eyes burned as with a fire that came up from within. "'I've come to warn you,' he said. "'You're in great danger.' You must stop that demonstration. Sit down, sir, sit down, said Pete. Philip did not seem to hear. He walked to and fro with short, nervous, noiseless steps. The governor sent for me last night, and I found him in a frenzy. Deemster, he said, they tell me there's to be a disturbance at Tinwald. Have you heard of anything? I said yes, I had heard of a meeting of fishermen at Peel. They talk of their rights, said he. I'll teach them something of one right they seem to forget, the right of the governor to shoot down the disturbers of Tinwald, without judge or jury. That's a very old prerogative, Your Excellency, I said. It comes down from more lawless days than ours. You will never use it. Will I not, said he. Listen, I'll tell you what I've done already. I've ordered the regiment at Castletown to be on Tinwald Hill on Tinwald Day. Every man of these, there are three hundred, shall have twenty rounds of bull cartridge. Then if the vagabonds try to interrupt the court, I've only to lift my hand, so, and they'll be mown down like grass. You can't mean it, I said, and I tried to take his big talk lightly. Judge for yourself, see? And he showed me a paper. It was an order for the ambulance wagons to be stationed on the ground, and a request to the doctors of Douglas to be present. Then we've made the old boy see that we mean it, said Pete. "'If you know any one of the ringleaders, Deemster,' he said with a look into my face, "'somebody had been with him. There are tell-tales everywhere.' "'It's the way of the world still,' said Pete. "'Tell him,' said he, "'that I don't want to take the life of any man. I don't want to send any one to penal servitude. It was useless to protest. The man was mad, but he was in earnest. His plan was folly, frantic folly, but it was based on a sort of legal right.' So, for the Lord's sake, Pete, stop this thing. Stop it at once, and finally, it's life or death. If ever you thought my word worth anything, you'll do as I bid you now. 
God knows where I should be myself if the governor were to do what he threatens. Stop it, stop it. I haven't slept for thinking of it. Pete had been sitting at the table, chewing the tip of the pen, and now he lifted to the paleness and wildness of Philip's face a cool, bold smile. It's good of you, Phil. We've a right to be there, though, haven't we? You've a right, certainly, but... Then, by God, we'll go, said Pete, dropping the pen and bringing his fist down on the table. The penalty will be yours, Pete, yours. You are the man who will suffer. You first, you alone. Pete smiled again. No use, I'm incorrible. I'm like Danny Clay, the sheep-stealer, when he came to die. I'm going to eternal judgment. What'll I do, says Dan? Give back all you've stolen, says the parson. I'll chance it first, says the old rascal. It's the other fellow that's for stealing this time, but I'll chance it, Philip. Death it may be, and judgment too, but I'll chance it, boy. Philip's eyes wandered over the floor. Then you'll not change your plan for anything I've told you? I will, though, said Pete, for one thing anyway. You shan't be getting into trouble. I'll be spokesman for the fisherman myself. Oh, I'll speak enough if they get my dander up. I'll just square my arms across my chest, and I'll say, Your Excellency, I'll say, you can't do it, and you shan't do it, because it isn't right. But shoot, botheration to all such bobbery. Look here, man alive, look here. She's not forgetting the little one, you see. And making a proud sweep of the hand, Pete pointed to the scarlet hood. It had been put to sit across the back of a china dog on the mantelpiece, with Pete's half-sheet of paper pinned to the strings. Philip recognised it. The hood was the present he had made as godfather. His eyes blinked, his mouth twitched, the cords of his forehead moved. So she... she sent that, he stammered. Listen here, said Pete, and he unpinned the paper and read the message aloud, with flourishes of voice and gesture. For little Catherine, from her loving mother, papa not to worry, love to all, inquiring friends, best respects to the Dempster if I'm not forgot at him. Then in an offhand way he tossed the paper into the fire. Oh, what's a bit of a letter, he said largely, as it took flame and burned. Philip's bloodshot eyes seemed to be starting from his head. Nancy's right. A man would never have thought of the like of that. Now would he, said Pete, looking proudly from Philip to the hood, and from the hood back to Philip. Philip did not answer. Something seemed to be throttling him. But when a woman goes away, she leaves her eyes behind her, as you might say. What'll I be getting for them that's at home, she's thinking, and up comes a nice warm little thing for the baby. Oh, the women's good, Philip. They're what they make the sovereigns of, God bless them. Philip felt as if he must rush out of the house shrieking. One moment he stood up before Pete, as though he meant to say something, and then he turned to go. Not sleeping tonight? No? Have to get back to Douglas? Then maybe you'll write me a letter first. Philip nodded his head and returned, his mouth tightly closed, sat down at the table, and took up the pen. What is it? he asked. Am I to give you the words, Phil? Yes? Well, if you won't be thinking main... Pete charged his pipe out of his waistcoat pocket and began to dictate. Dear wife. At that Philip gave an involuntary cry. Or oh, best to begin proper, you know. Dear wife, said Pete again. Philip made a call on his resolution and put the words down. His hand fell cold. His heart fell frozen to the core. Pete lit up and walked to and fro as he dictated his letter. 
Nancy sat knitting by the cradle, with one foot on the rocker. "'Glad to get your welcome letter, darling, and the bonnet for the baby.' "'Go on,' said Philip, in an impassive voice. "'Got that down, Philip?' "'Oh, you're smart, wonderful with the pen, though.' "'When she's got it on her little head, you'd laugh tremendous. "'She's straight like a little John the Baptist in the church window.' Pete paused. Philip lifted his pen and waited. "'Done already? Man, Veen, there's no holding you.' "'Glad to hear you're so happy and comfortable with Uncle Joe and Auntie Joanie. "'Give the pair of them my fond love and best respects. "'We're getting on beautiful, and I'm as happy as a sandboy. "'Sometimes Granny gets a bit down with longing, and so does Nancy, "'but I tell them you'll be home for their funeral sermon anyway, "'and then they're comforted wonderful.' "'Don't be writing his rubbish and lies, Your Honour,' said Nancy. "'Shoot, woman, where's the harm at all? "'A merry touch to keep a person's spirits up "'when she's away from home, eh, Philip?' "'And Pete appealed to him with a nudge at his writing elbow. "'Philip gave no sign. "'With a look of stupor he was staring down at the paper as he wrote. "'Pete puffed and went on. "'Caesar's at it still, going through the Bible same as a trawl-boat, "'fishing up the little texts. The Dempster's putting a sight on us regular, and you're not forgot at him neither. Deed no, but thinking of you constant, and trusting you're the better for leaving home. Going too fast, am I? So I'm baiting you at last, eh? A cold perspiration had broken out on Philip's forehead, and he was looking up with the eyes of a hunted dog. Am I to? Must I write that, he said in a helpless way. Course, go ahead, said Pete, puffing clouds of smoke and laughing. Philip wrote it. His hand was now stiff. It sprawled and splashed over the paper. As for myself, I'm a sort of a grass widow, and if you keep me without a wife much longer, you'll be taxing me for a bachelor. Pete put his pipe on the mantelpiece, cleared his throat repeatedly, and began to be afflicted with a cough. Glad to hear you're coming home soon, darling. <coughs> Dearest Kirry, I'm missing you mortal. <coughs> Worse nor at Kimberley. <coughs> when I'm going to bed, where is she to-night, I'm saying? And when I'm getting up, where is she now, I'm thinking? And in the dark midnight, I'm asking myself, is she asleep, I wonder? <coughs> Come home quick, Boch, but not before you're well at all. Never do fetch her too soon, you know, he said in a whisper over Philip's shoulder, with another nudge at his elbow. Philip answered incoherently, and shrank under Pete's touch, as if he had been burnt. The coughing continued. The dictating began again. "'I'm keeping a warm nest for you here, love. There'll be a welcome from everybody, and nobody saying anything but the good and the kind. So come home soon, my true little wife, before the foolish old heart of your husband is losing him.' Pete coughed violently, and stretched his neck and mouth awry. This cough I've got in my neck is fit to tear me in pieces, he said. A spoonful of cold pinjane, Nancy. It's terrible good to soften the neck. Nancy was nodding over the cradle. She had fallen asleep. Philip had turned white and giddy and sick. For one moment an awful impulse seized him. He wanted to fall on Pete, to lay hold of him, to choke him. The consciousness of his own inferiority, his own duplicity, made him hate Pete. The very sweetness of the man sickened him. He could not help it. The last spark of his self-pride was fighting for its life. Then in shame, in remorse, in horror of himself and dread of everything, he threw down the pen, caught up his hat, 
shouted good-night in a voice like the growl of a beast in terror, and ran out of the house. Nancy started up from a doze. Goodness gracious, she said, and the cradle rocked violently under her foot. He's that tender-hearted and sympathising, whispered Pete as he closed the door. <coughs> the letter's finished, though, and here's the envelope. End of Part 5, Chapter 7